Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. An interview with Dr. Victoria McCollum. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Horror Vanguard. I am your co-ghost, John, better known as the Liquid Guy, joined as always by my friend and comrade Ash. Ash, how you doing? I'm as as good as can be expected uh, for the day after the UK elections. <laughs> We 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 are in hell. We live in we live in hell. We love it. You you love to see it, folks. Um, the, the nightmare has metastasized <laughs> from the U.S. and spread over. It, it's it's been yeah, it's been quite a day. Uh, it, on 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 left Twitter on right. in the U.K. generally, I think. But we are we are back. We are and making another. Thankfully, we're not alone today. We are making another episode, and we have a guest. We have a guest with us. We are joined by Victoria McCollum. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're so welcome. Hi, everyone. So, uh, so uh, go, go on, Ash. Go on. After you. Uh, so, so you were you were so kind to stop by our, our humble podcasting crypt uh, to talk about. I think this is your most recent uh, book that you've released, this edited collection. Yes, correct. It is. Yes. And so um, if you would like to uh, take a moment to introduce yourself to the audience and then tell us a little bit about the fantastic book we'll be talking about today. Yeah, of course. I'd love to. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Victoria. I'm coming to you from a dark and stormy uh, north coast <laughs> of Ireland. Um, I just realized it's Friday the 13th. Is this some kind of trick that you're playing? <laughs> um, I have terrible Wi-Fi, as, as you would expect, so we'll probably be patchy. Um, I'm a lecturer in cinematic arts, which really just means filmmaking, um, at Ulster University in Derry in Northern Ireland, which is my home turf. Um, I guess you've probably heard of Derry before. We have an interesting history. Um, and uh, our Halloween festival, actually, guys, check this out, right? Our Halloween festival is the largest in Western Europe. That's amazing. Yeah, it makes so sense, cool. right? Um, but yeah, I guess I'm in, in a unique situation at work because I teach both film theory and filmmaking practice, um, but I mainly author and edit books on, say, popular television or contemporary horror. So I have an upcoming book called Bloody Woman, uh, Women Directors of Horror, which I'm really excited about. Amazing. Yeah, and I'm co-editing that with a Northern Irish director called Ashlyn Clark. Um, you should check out her debut feature film. It's called The Devil's Doorway. But yeah, and I guess the best place to connect with me is on Twitter. Um, yeah, so I could tell you a bit about the book. Um, yeah, definitely. What's in there and what it's arguing and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the book explores how the horror genre has been and is kind of responding more rapidly and at a, I guess a good deal more effectively than competing art forms to the Trump years, so events and anxieties and discourses and dogmas and socio-political conflicts of that particular era. Um, I argue, as you would expect me to, that the genre has this uniquely sensitive relationship to points of cultural tension and conflict. And of course, that's all news, right? It's not a new argument. But actually, that Trump era horror has this kind of, it has a new flavor. Um, so many chapters stand out. And of course, I would say that. But honestly, um, I could probably take you in a little whistle stop tour through the book parts if you would prefer. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah, please do. OK, cool. So feel free to interject at any point. Um, OK, so part one is about monstrous clowns, which is, <laughs> of course, and the subversion of that kind of traditional comic character. Um, Scott, who hopefully will be joining us later, has a brilliant chapter in there on cinematic killer clowns mm -hmm. um, over recent decades. And he kind of positions these texts as crucial to our understanding of the chaotic rise of the Trump regime. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a really interesting chapter in there on It, the reboot, and how Pennywise represents this kind of genderless evil. Um, and the author said that says that, that then exemplifies shifting rhetorics of horror, so AKA transphobia in the Trump era. Mm -hmm. um, part two is themed 
Trump inspired an upsurge in female-led protest. So one chapter examines how parallels to these protests can be found in a recent cycle of horror. One chapter deals with queer horror and how it's kind of stepping out of the shadows um, and explores things like why the Babadook is a queer icon right yes. now, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> yes, 100%. <laughs> so that's one to read. Um, part three is themed around popular narratives of late that feature white male anger. Um, so there's one great chapter about angry men and captive women in post-recession horror films. There's one, as you might expect, on Get Out and horror's mm. racial politics. Another on how horror films like The Witch and It Comes at Night are yeah. really about the U.S. kind of responding to its own anxiety by turning inward. Um, so I think that's interesting. Um, lastly, then, part four is really cool because it's about alternative texts that are largely absent from horror scholarship. So it's about animated films and podcasts. So chapter one is on Hotel Transylvania 2, right? And it's racist, sexist and homophobic undertones. Mm -hmm. It's honestly shocking. Um, another on how South Park is heavily utilizing horror. And finally, um, the last one of that section argues that grassroots horror podcasts, like this one, I might add, <laughs> um, actually hold this kind of unique insight and they're, they function as a kind of unique communicative means in the Trump years. Um, the final part of the book is all about Twin, Twin Peaks The Return. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess it's about what we expected versus what we received. So there's two chapters in it. They explore the nostalgia that's exploited by reboots. Um, and of course, that's a nostalgia that shares the ideology of make America great again. Um, and the authors argue that Twin Peaks resists any comforting escapes from the reality of a very horrible present. Um, so that's what the book's about. Um, it was a lot of fun um, and a lot of horror to kind of grapple with. But but yeah, I'm, I'm glad that it's out there. Yeah, the book was fantastic. Like, I really enjoyed reading this one. Oh, I appreciate that. Definitely. Um, I I loved the the section on the Babadook. Obviously, I, I uh, the the section on podcasting and horror podcasting. I had a soft spot for that for reasons <laughs> I mean, that are not clear to me. We've we finally got we finally got the academic legitimacy that we've always wanted. <laughs> Yeah, you, you can shelter behind that for years now, right, guys? Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, that and like, and then I, I gotta say, uh, um, I, I, I hope he is able to show up today because Scott Poole's uh, section on killer clowns and Trump horror is just phenomenally good. Yeah, I, I've already said to Ash that we we we're gonna limit how much he can talk about ICP if we <laughs> if when when we get on to talking about clowns. It is a foundational uh, text of American clown horror, John. <laughs> I will not hear otherwise. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's the, 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 like Scott's essay includes just, just such brilliant films like It and Killer Clowns from Outer Space, yeah. for, which I feel like we need to read more about. And Funland and Clown House and The Dark Knight, it's it's excellent. <laughs> yeah, the whole the whole book is really fantastic. Like I really, really liked how the all of these like texts can be read and are codified kind of through the Trump era, as, as, it, uh, as you phrase it in the introduction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm glad that you like it, Ash. I did have some trolls on Twitter. And when I say some, I mean hundreds. <laughs> but, um, but thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think I think, though, that re that response, though, is revealing of something that the book actually points towards. Right. Uh, the, you know, that's 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 the kind of psychology that underpins a lot of this. Uh, I don't even think it's in a kind of individual subjectivity. It's like a mass subjectivity mm -hmm. mediated through digital platforms that, you know, yeah. you, you you dared question the legitimacy of the God King Trump. <laughs> Therefore, there's this kind of like dark libidinal economy at work where you have to kind of <laughs> swarm and defend. Uh, so if anything, that's only proof that the book was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a really good way to put it, John. Maybe I'll put a quote from you on the back of the book. That would, <laughs> that would be ideal at this point. Yeah, <laughs> I will send um, your check in the post. <laughs> <laughs> but but maybe 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 we can t kind of take a step back for a second, and um, you know, your the book that you've just put out, our podcast, films like Get Out. They're kind of all examples of grappling with the kind of political resurgence of of the horror form. And so 
we were just kind of interested in in hearing your thoughts on what is it about the, our kind of current condition, our current social, material, cultural, political conditions that have brought this about, that brought about this kind of shift into a very much more explicitly political form of horror? Um, I think that's a really, really good question. Um, I think that we can read this change where you have this proliferation of political horror and you could read at the same time the ascendancy of Trump and people like Boris as a symptom of rising fear and anxiety that is being fueled by um, things like xenophobia and nationalism and racism and misogyny and being anti-Semitic and anti-immigrant and all of that rhetoric um, in numerous countries today. I think that it's being caused by that. I think that is our current condition. And I think that we can read um, the rise of political horror and also the ascendancy of Trump and Boris, uh, for that matter, um, against that current condition. Yeah, I think so. And I think... I think it's really interesting to see the kind of uh, this idea that horror is an expression of the kind of cultural anxieties of of a particular historical conjuncture. Um, like we get to track that in real time, um, and there's this horrible kind of cross proliferation of like horror tropes ending up in day to day political language and vice versa. Um, you know, there's that disgusting Katie Hopkins column where she oh, yeah. ref refer refers to, to people f fleeing the results of kind of imperialistic violence in, in uh, the Middle East and North Africa as, as, a, as a swarm, as, as, as a horde, as, as cockroaches, which is the language of like the contemporary zombie film. Yeah, so th absolutely. There's this horrible kind of cross, uh, you know, uh, context movement of language and trope happening that i think kind of contemporary horror really lets us kind of dig into yeah absolutely and i think it's probably very much linked to the post 9 11 climate as well yeah um that's what my monograph my first monograph was about the one before this it's called post 9 11 heartland horror and i think that that's probably how the do the two books both kind of collide um and i guess yeah it's 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 interesting. I think as well, what's interesting, I guess, about that link is that Trump has kind of wielded even things like the attacks on 9-11 for personal gain. Mm. And I think that 9-11 in many ways continues to shape US politics. And it has become a kind of key trope, like a prop in some kind of political theater. Um, and when you mention Hopkins, that kind of springs to mind. Yeah, 9-11 uh, definitely... Uh, changed changed the political landscape of the United States in in more than just the obvious ways. Like I think um, post nine eleven political rhetoric is definitely, uh, if not directly informed by, in some cases uh, entirely mirroring, uh, you know, rhetoric about zombie movies and fears about invasion and bodily corruption, and those things are kind of deeply linked into all of the post nine eleven you know collective trauma that you know shocked the country as it were yes yeah absolutely i, mean, I think yes. that well yeah that there's a real kind of manufacturing of distraction in the age yeah. which very much kind of ties back into bush um and that particular regime mm -hmm. i think it's it, really really interesting about about both both times both that kind of post 9 11 era and the, the kind of Trump years, and I talk about this, about this a little bit in the book, is that like you can see that major TV networks um, in the US and I think in the UK also are kind of leaning towards conservatism. And I call it oh, yeah. Trump, yeah, like Trump TV in the book. And I mean, I get it, right? Like no matter your political leanings, like glory and grit and guts and those kind of stories, um, you know, are very persuasive and they make for compelling viewing. But it does seem like executives were kind of questionably quick to pivot towards those archetypal values and that kind of evangelical tone and sometimes war theology. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And it shows the way in which kind of like media responses to political shifts have only kind of intensified um, I mean, I think the point about 9-11 being a sort of like world historic event, um, you know, the kind of restarting of the end of history, as it were, where we all went, oh, yeah, Fukuyama's completely wrong. Um, <laughs> turns out the history isn't <laughs> over at all. Uh, you know, wouldn't have that been nice. But 
that that's that that is kind of directly tied into the advances in digital communications into social media that immediately kind of transmitted all of those images and all of that kind of political ideology uh, globally. So the fact that it was immediately kind of replicated in 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 culture with the pivot towards, like you say, I really like that phrase of Trump TV, um, mm. which has it which has its own kind of like deeply conservative side because there's al- al- already been one horror movie that's been cancelled uh, yeah. because yeah. it was oh, yeah. it was going to annoy the Trump fans. Um, so I think I think that's a really interesting kind of look at how politics and culture have kind of collided through that. Um, through the kind of image. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, I say it in the book as well, I think that red state is the new black in many ways. Um, And it kind of ties in with what you're saying. And I think as well, it's something to do with the the shift in communication, that Trump is this kind of commander of communication and traffic Trump's ethics. And he's a brand and a media spectacle. And he kind of rolls on accumulating capital and power and followers. And he becomes this ideology. And I kind of term that in the book, Trump trumpology um and then of course when you have great when you go to great lengths to curtail the freedom of the press and of course horror is going to respond to that it's going to kind of like in those turbulent political climates it's going to repeatedly emerge as a counter narrative right to kind of um brush all of that nonsense against the green so i think it functions as a kind of um alternative voice i guess in some way yeah yeah definitely i think that that definitely um is applicable and that's always like that's one of like the the classic functions of the gothic and horror right you've got that almost almost like this dialectic ambiguity where you've got these uh, you know like di- absolutely disgusting and abject people like katie hopkins employing the the exact same language that we find in george romero's zombie movies and george romero is using these to much more i guess we can call those progressive social ends yeah absolutely and I think it kind of ties into horror history. Um, I know we spoke about that a little bit earlier, but like any notable periods of remarkable productivity or creativity in relation to the genre are also, you know, periods of deep mm. political, cultural turmoil. Um, I mean, you should see my students' horror films. Um, you get, you know, one could learn a lot from that. Um, and then you have golden ages, I guess, generated by the Great Depression in the 1930s or the political unrest of the anti-war and civil rights movements and other movements in the late 1960s. Um, and I think it just, yeah, I guess that's that's what the relationship is between horror and politics. Yeah, I I really like that. I really like that point, and it's something Mark um, Mark Stevens in his book Splatter Capital makes a makes a really similar argument that it's in times of capitalist crisis you end up seeing a massive resurgence in in horror. Um, you know, you you have economic instability, which really you know is often and frequently combined with political instability so then what he he kind of reads that through um the kind of abjection and destruction of the body um in in the splatter film and in and in uh kind of uh even even in the even in the very modern iterations of what's what's called derisively called torture porn um Mm -hmm. so i really think that 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 is a really important thing that we've tried to kind of tease out pretty much in every episode of the show that we've done, that there is always a direct um, kind of, there's a dark side to capitalist modernity, right? Political progress is never utopian. There's always, uh, there are always monsters just lurking underneath. Absolutely. I think it kind of, for some reason, it brings to mind, have you seen that Canadian film called Pontypool? No, no, I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, guys, you should check it out. Um, For (laughs) me, it's like one of the most innovative zombie pictures of the past decade. So it kind of, I'll tell you about it quickly. It revolves around this radio host, right? And he Mm -hmm. interprets this possible outbreak of a deadly virus. So it's like you guys sitting there interpreting this outbreak to a gullible public at home. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And the deadly virus infects this small town in Ontario. Um, So it's a linguistic virus that spreads when words it has infected or spoken to and understood by a living host. Mm. Um, So they become a zombie compelled to repeat the word and they pass the disease on to others. And I think it kind of serves as this like incredible allegory about the sometimes lethal effect of mass media, you know, especially kind of inflammatory discourse associated with that kind of talk radio TV. Um, Mm. But I think it's, 
Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one because in the age of Trump, you know, the chief populist Twitterer, he's the master of 140 character politics. Such a film feels as sharp as a blade. I but, I just ha- I just had a quick look at this, Ash, and I think we we absolutely need to do an episode on this. Yeah, I was going to say this sounds like something we should absolutely uh, cover in the coming months here. Yeah, honestly, it's so cool. So the protagonist is this self-styled cowboy, and he becomes a vector for actual disease, um, whose aim is kind of provocation over communication, and he inflicts outrage. It's you guys would be into it. It's good. <laughs> it, it definitely sounds like a horror film. I don't know how this one like skipped my radar. <laughs> <laughs> no that sounds that sounds like it would be very that that sounds like it has some some big horror vanguard energy uh we need to <laughs> we need to watch that i think yeah it's got some good juju in there i think i think that does uh that gives us a good uh pivot pivot point uh into into another uh, question we wanted to talk about and that's um <laughs> so like trump and horror specifically and the kinds of horror that trump represents you know we have these these figures of the clowns this the the racist implication of zombie language and and i i think like you know i haven't seen pontypool yet but like the the idea that it spreads like this kind of thought virus you know now we have like uh you know the emergence of boris johnson who is in many respects disturbingly similar to trump (laughs) yes Yeah, I think for me, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned Boris. He's the thing of nightmares, isn't he? Um, For me, Trump Trump is the first candidate to pursue politics as entertainment, right? Mm -hmm. And so he kind of collapses the distinction between entertainment and news and politics. And that's exactly what Boris kind of does. Or maybe it's paved the way for a Boris. Um, And I think that this has then given way... And you see this in the horror films of the Trump era to a very aggressive form of um, authoritarian populism. Um, And obviously this has created a mass movement even beyond Trump's presidency. Um, And I read it, I guess, in the book. And I believe that the, the Trump era horror kind of exemplifies this, that this authoritarian populism is a danger to democracy and things like U.S. global peace and stability. Um, and what I really think about Scott's chapter in particular on clown horror is that it explores Trump and Trumpism, um, and it argues that this embodies all that we find horrifying in the chaos that the clown signifies. Um, so I think that's interesting. But what's most terrifying to me is just that Trumpism is likely to long outlast Trump, <laughs> which is a frightening thing, really. Yeah. I think yeah, that, but- I mean, there are already certain Republicans who are talking about Trumpism without Trump, right? Because what you, what you have then is you have an entertainment figure who manages to completely kind of um reorientate and restructure a certain section of the political imaginary so it becomes impossible to be a republican without hearkening back to trump politics it's the same way in the uk where you can't really be a conservative without in some way being like indebted to to thatcherism mm-hmm. absolutely i think it's a it's a tale of two paths in many way um I think on the one, it, Trump's in, Trump is interesting or Trumpism is, is interesting because I think on one hand, Trump occupies the position of yet another elite. He is the billionaire class. He's a poster boy for excessive, conspicuous consumption. And then on the other hand, he serves, according to some, as this kind of almost messianic figure to those who are suffering from economic deprivation or, I guess, humiliation or political alienation. Um, so I think there's something complex complex going on there and that that's also interesting one thing one thing i wanted to ask uh, that's that's kind of related to what we're talking about right now is that uh the, the bush years were some of the worst years uh for america you know the the scale of crimes committed by the bush administration is something that i i don't think america has reckoned with and i don't know if we ever can truly reckon with kind of, kind of the scale of of the catastrophe that bush started with the war in iraq and now the eternal war on terror uh but uh, trump as a public figure is is definitely inspiring more horror you know like the the bush years were horrific and outrage against bush was was noted and powerful but there's something about trump that kind of drives people to to this deeper level 
of kind of disgust and terror and and the use of the horrific as a tool to explore the cultural moment. And I was wondering, do you, what kind of distinctions do you draw between these two errors in terms of the, I guess, the horrific response to them? Um, I think that's a really difficult question, but it's a it's a brilliant point. Um, I think that one of the key differences is actually a bigger picture thing is that Trump, because Trump represents an evolution of sorts, like mm-hmm. another step in the merger between entertainment and celebrity and politics. It's one of those questions you've really kind of, it's, it's such a curveball, but it's a good one. it's totally okay i have a i have a slight hot take on this well it's not really not not really a hot take honestly i think a lot of the kind of kind of response the hashtag resistance to to trumpism is a kind of aesthetic revolution right Mm -hmm. the the problem with uh, for i not for not for everybody and i think actually the growth in on the ground activism and and kind of cultural expression is nothing but a positive but i do think there is a certain section of kind of what we might to be a kind of vulgar Marxist for a second to, to call what we might call like bourgeois liberalism. The, the, the response is like Trump is tacky, you know, he's, he, he's, he's ostentatious, he's crude. And so the revulsion is like, well, he's in charge, but we don't like his style. Um, and I, I, I think it's really telling actually in a way that when, American soldiers under the under the the commander in chief, President Bush, were, you know, uh, taking pictures of brutalized Iraqi prisoners and electrocuting them and and torturing people in extraordinary rendition sites in a way that is essentially torture pornography made politically and concretely real. There was not the same kind of revulsion because aesthetically, he didn't kind of trigger the same impulse. You know, you've got people like. Um, like Ellen cozying up to George Bush and mm-hmm. Michelle Obama saying that our values are exactly the same. Um, but now, because we have somebody who is a kind of, uh, who is aesthetically not in line with what elite political power is supposed to look like, I do think that is part of the reason that there's been an upsurge in kind of like, you know, uh, cultural disgust. I don't think that's the whole thing. Um, but I do think that is absolutely part of it. And we shouldn't kind of discount that because it would be very easy to say that horror is kind of like a progressive or, or revolutionary or or left wing cultural form. But I do think it is also uh, it's deeply ambivalent. It's deeply ambivalent about political power. Yeah, OK, I, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> I absolutely agree with that, I think, as well. Um, you know, I so I wrote the monograph on post 9-11 horror and I looked a lot at even President Bush's uh, speeches. Um, and even when he would re- refer to anger, um, he would refer to this kind of quiet, unyielding anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it became a decade long, brutal saga that spinned without end. Um so it wasn't that at all, but I think it's two kind of very different situations, but also um, with really interesting ov- overlaps. Yeah, yeah. I think um, well, one thing I think it would be worth to kind of touch on in a little bit more detail, something that we brought up a few times in the conversation. Uh, the lead chapter of this book is is uh, Scott Poole's fantastic article on uh, clowns and Trump. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what is it about uh, Trump and Trumpism and and uh, the the general affect of of I guess like modern reactionary slash proto fascist politics that's that's so inspiring for this you know why why clowns of all things. <laughs> Well, I think that Scott kind of, um, the interesting thing about Scott's chapter is that an experience that the residents in South Carolina um, had when they believed that stories of clowns were luring children to their deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, and by Halloween, of course, I think in I think by Halloween, days before the 2016 election, alleged clown sightings had become kind of national and international yep. in their phenomenon. Um, And what's really interesting about Scott's chapter is that he kind of examines this cinematic killer clown, but over several decades, right, of this violent and fearful American landscape. Um, And he reads that as crucial for understanding Trump's kind of um, chaotic rise. Um, And I think Trump and Trumpism just embodies all that we find absolutely horrifying in the chaos that the clown signifies. And that even you could go so much to say that some of those CM attributes actually prove attractive to his core supporters Mm -hmm. for the same reason. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's de- definitely interesting. Yeah, I definitely like when you were when you were talking about um, the initial release of this book and and having to deal with trolls. You know, what are what are trolls <laughs> if not minor players in an army of evil clowns? You know, with, <laughs> with the same like absolutely yes, like like with on, on so many levels too, because everything they're doing is ostensibly just for jokes. If you uh, you know listen to what they have to say about it, which is incorrect, but. Um, and then, like you know, like masquerading as as online personalities, the fake identity of the clown, and all of the Joker fandom stuff. Like, I I really loved that first chapter because clowns just work so well as like synecdoche for the horror of Trump. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Trump kind of orchestrates a circus of cruelty. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. U.S. politics and U.K. politics are a freak show. So, I mean, what better, right? Yeah, yeah that is, honestly, absolutely. that's like prophetic. That's so good. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm glad. But, that, you know, there's a kind of long historical lineage there, right? The fool was always uh, close to authority, you know, could often disregard social norms. Uh, you know, Shakespeare wrote amazing fools uh and there's this so there is this and clowns have always had an edge of of danger because they're not bound by the same social conventions right they're not bound by the same rules and regulations you don't know what they might do which is why uh small children very correctly identify them as being profoundly scary yeah absolutely i mean monstrous clowns who kind of terrorize and hunt and threaten us have been a cultural icon for an, an extremely long time now Killer clowns, huh? <laughs> the movie is fantastic, though. Killer clowns from outer space is an absolute classic. Yeah, I oh yeah, definitely. Should, should watch that one and Pontypool, of course. I know you're going to go. But I think, as far as what kinds of political critiques we can mount through horror, um, I think that in the Trump years we can expect, you know, critique and satire and consciousness raising from a broadly leftist political point of view. Um, but what I think is really interesting to know, right, is that scholars and critics have been complaining about horror since, I guess, around the 2000s. So the post 9-11 era, that it's too reactive, that like, damn, this horror film is not going to change anything. Um, and there's a really good review by Nick Pinkerton in Sight and Sound, and it's a review of The Purge. Um, and it's absolutely blistering. I mean, it's so cutting of the film. He's like, who cares if this is something to say? It's just another pathetic yowl to add to the din. Um, and I think it's worth noting how like, growing dissatisfaction regarding the political limitations of current horror actually chimes in tandem with growing disconsent regarding the limitations of dissent today. So we're pissed mm-hmm. off about horror because we're kind of pissed off about the limitations of our own dissent. But I think that subtlety is important because um, I've noticed recently, and I write a little bit about this in the introduction to the book, that some horror is so frenzied in its socio-political ramblings that it feels largely devoid of any kind of useful specificity. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, and I expect British horror to get its teeth into into something soon. You know, I expect British horror to get its teeth into cruelty and austerity and wealth mm-hmm. inequality and corporate media and classism and racism and greed in the very near future. Yeah, I've just uh, I was just saying to Ash um, that I've started working on something on Brexit horror, um, which <laughs> which I, I completely agree. I completely agree, and I think the point about the frustration of horror being an expression of the kind of overall bigger frustrations of political um, subjectivity of the limits of what we can do, you know, under capitalist realism, under 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 the neoliberal nightmare that we all live through is actually really important because i think that means that we actually have to return to those specific critiques right um i think this is something that's really key that specificity is how you create consciousness raising it's how you how you engender recognition if something is trying to be a kind of universal statement it isn't going to resonate because people will think that's you know it's too vague it's difficult to know what it's trying to say but specificity doesn't draw everybody in but it does draw the right people in 
Yeah, I would absolutely agree. I mean, I think as well, horror at its best shouldn't be simple. Um, and so many, so those like frenzied social, social political ramblings, like, I mean, American Horror Story cult have be, has been accused of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then such films and texts, they lack the tangible teeth that's needed to, I guess, radically challenge the status quo. And they obviously fail to compete when it when they're kind of inevitably compared with the more distinguished works of modern horrors, finding fathers like Romero. Um, and I think actually on the subject of Brexit horror, I think those are some of the reasons why making a kind of very um, loud anti-Brexit horror film in the current climate would seem in, ineffective insofar that its view would be kind of left the leftist status quo. So I think that British horror will kind of um, be... Will will British horror will move towards the same kind of complexity that we have come to kind of love about recent mm-hmm. contemporary American horror, um, and a layer of subtlety also. Interestingly, yeah, I, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Go on, Ash. Oh, I was I was just gonna say that reminds me of um something something we brought up on the show a few times before. Um, usually usually for some for some reason that I can't quite think of, but usually when we were uh, talking about and kind of going through. Uh, larger studio, more famous and well-known movies is that the the closer you are to kind of these cinematic apparatus, you know, the closer you are to Hollywood and major studios and the funding machines inside of them, the, the it kind of necessarily forces the text that you're making to be a little bit more vague. And, and it, it takes away some of the biting potential you can have. And it kind of uh, it boils things down and it reduces them to, I guess, what I would call a... Um, kind of a, 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 a like a liberal center, like an American Democrat or Lib Dem critique of the right, you know, like a, a desire to return to the quote unquote norms that were never very good for a lot of people to begin with. But once you start moving into uh, kind of away from that system a little bit and you don't even have to leave Hollywood, but like the further you get away from from kind of like, I guess, the imperial core of the, the cultural machine that is cinema. You can, you can really start to get a lot of independent cinema that can be really biting and good. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. And I think that that kind of maybe we could call it kind of it's maybe not alternative isn't the best word, but yeah. it becomes kind of more radical in a way, right? Because it differs from established or dominant norms in terms of its content and its production and its distribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's produced within a niche yet still admittedly mainstream industry. And then it becomes kind of renowned for its counter hegemonic value and, and advocating the interests of those excluded from the mainstream. Yep. Um, yeah. So I think that's really kind of interesting. And those films defy rigid categorization. I think that's what's yes. so about them. I, I totally agree. Can, I think you can see something similar actually in the context of British horror with the recent resurgence in uh, horror writing of folk horror. You know, you've got people like Jen Richardson, Sarah Moss, Andrew Michael Hurley. They're all writing this very kind of complex, very subtle, very historically driven um, folk horror, often about kind of the natural world and this idea that actually there isn't a civility to get back to. There isn't a norm that has to be restored because it's violence and horror and exploitation and brutality almost all the way down. And it's, it's, it's woven into the very fabric of, of Britain as a, as a space. So I think that really chimes with what you're pointing out is how one of the possible future ways that British horror might develop post Brexit, post Boris. Oh, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. So speaking, speaking of the future, <laughs> so uh, we're, we're, we're definitely, we are uh, temporally and kind of artistically near this, the beginning of, uh, you know, the, the horror of the Trump administration, the horror of Brexit, the horror of the recent election in the UK. And as we move forward, you know, we have the upcoming American election in 2020. Uh, Trump is officially toying with plans to run a third uh, uh, term campaign in 2024, which would break American law and tradition and history. Oh, goody. But we're also we're also at a pivotal point where, um, you know, really, it's not since the 1960s that you see popular left organizing in America being so strong, winning so many seats in the government. And there are these resurgences are beginning. So looking looking forward to the future of horror, kind of where where, where do you see the echoes of this current law, Trump horror uh, landscape spreading? Like, what would you see in the future of this? 
Um, I think that's a really good question. I think that it would be a short and sweet answer. I think for the future of horror, um, there's one key direction. I think that we can expect more complexity. Filmmakers like Jordan Peele or mm -hmm. Robert Eggers are kind of pushing forward by looking at the past. And I think that's key. Um, and I absolutely think for the record that Trump could well blunder his way into a re-election unless yeah. <laughs> the Democrats target working class dissatisfaction. At least that's what it feels like from here. And we're going through something similar. Yeah. Um, and since Republican administrations beget better horror films, I think we can expect that the coming years will see a continuation of the kind of productivity and boldness that has characterized the past few years. Um, I will say this, though, right? Um, and I say it one day after the British elections, in which former mining towns mm -hmm. have to replace the party that has represented the workers' movement for a hundred years with a party that spent the last three decades destroying it, yeah. that I suspect yeah. Sanders does not have a hope in hell of being elected, especially if we go by Corbyn's kind of crushing defeat. And on that depressing note... <laughs> <laughs> well, Sorry, I think, No, I think, I think you're right. I think you're right that... Um, like the choice is um is pretty clear in terms of in terms of a democrat versus republican in in 2020 and i think your point about we're going to be constantly returning back to history is really is really key because i think as ash said earlier if there is anything that america has has never done it's actually confront the traumatic horrific brutal nature of its own history you know, it's all been disavowed. It's all been kind of repressed. It's all been buried. And if Gothic and Horror Studies tells us anything, it's that anything you bury is going to come back. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's a kind of mentality outside of the US. I know I, I can just speak for myself, but that the US comes out rather favorably in the last 200 years by comparison to your European neighbors. Um, and perhaps that kind of leaves us a little bit, um, I guess, complacent about the kind of massive genocide that that the u.s have have kind of um staged and its colonial period and all that kind of thing and the, the wars waged of intervention um because we're kind of so obsessed with our own our own issues yeah yeah it's definitely interesting to consider the the historic ramifications and and the flow of empire and genocide going from like the the british empire and over now to the american empire under under which we all kind of currently have to find our lives and the it's the, there's definitely a lot of um americans who are supporters of bernie sanders who are watching what's happening in the uk right now who are thinking about strategy and thinking about the sanders campaign and trying to see what lessons are to be learned from a, a very similar but distinct politician in terms of like how our different nations electoral politics work yeah but i think Oh, I was just gonna say, I think though the one thing that you pointed out that I really caught on to was that the the Democratic Party, uh, much like the Lib Dems in the UK, uh, it's a it's a centrist party that favors the status quo, kind of regardless of what the status quo is. It's just <laughs> some vague business interests and nothing ever changing. And in in a world that's increasingly you know, in, in, in the UK, you've got little children trying to sleep on hospital floors because there's not enough beds. And in America, you've got little children taking fish antibiotics because there's no health care in this country whatsoever. And in a world where that's the status quo for so many people, a party of the status quo is going to be increasingly rejected. And if the only game in town is uh, an evil uh, psycho killer clown, <laughs> that that's what people are going to latch onto. They're going to vote evil psycho killer clown because the alternative is a slower and more agonizing defeat. Yeah, no, I asked. That is profound. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's been a day I, for profound yeah. clown takes. <laughs> it has. I think that, um, you know, really our, our conversation in many ways just demonstrates that our political world is becoming increasingly popularized in some kind of way. Mm. And that our popular world is becoming increasingly politicized in new and important ways. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. And as we we say on the show, like uh, Marx describing capital as dead labor, as vampiric, as as a monster shambling out of its 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 grave, that is not a metaphor. <laughs> that is that is that is not a metaphor that is not a literary literary flourish that is not a rhetorical device that is that is a kind of psycholinguistic shortcut to illustrate the kind of true nature of the political reality that we 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 live in um uh, ever more so since since yesterday's political news oh i know i know it's yeah. so depressing i think as well like a lot of horror today appears perversely occupied with kind of glib and trendy, not so much plotted as delivered political metaphors at the expense of compelling genre filmmaking. And I guess it's, um, I'm saying that because I teach some practice as well, but I think that if it if it's too kind of, um, if it's not plotted and it's simply just delivered in, in some kind of glib, trendy way, then this lessens the genre's standing as plugged into its social and historical context in compelling and complicated and persuasive ways yes and that's why i, what I absolutely agree yeah many critics and scholars um who are real lovers of genre filmmaking right they're refusing to bend the knee to the zeitgeist and mm -hmm. their film their critic their film criticism is often all the better for it i have to admit yeah yeah I, I completely agree i think definitely in terms of craft we are we are coming off of just in the last god like maybe year and a half or so we're coming off of in, of like almost two decades of just like mainstream horror just being incredibly derivative incredibly tired and of course like there's always there's always going to be amazing horror films that are happening on on the outskirts you know but we had like 48 paranormal films 10,000 yeah. soft films you know like franchise horror becoming an incredibly derivative being in and of itself and then like like the the annabelle films you know they they spawned their own annabelle cinematic universe and, and we're, we're kind of we're kind of rounding a corner of that now you know we are the popular horror landscape is starting to kind of you know it's 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 like like some kind of shambling monster it's it's spasming and kind of shooting forth these new growths instead of dying off which Absolutely. which is which is a reflection which is a reflection of the way in which kind of like film culture generally has become this stagnant repetitious like didactic and and kind of like uh constantly franchised thing we we are we we've talked repeatedly on the show about our, our just cultural exhaustion with living in the expanded cinematic universe for literally everything. So, <laughs> but, but it's so, it's so encouraging to see the way that horror has, has kind of taken that as an opportunity. There is always a kind of new monstrous form that emerges. Yeah, absolutely. I would wholeheartedly agree. And I think you can see that not that the awards are any kind of not that winning an Oscar is any kind of recognition of quality, of course. Um, but I think you can see it in horror being kind of recognized by by the Academy because they're rarely acknowledged oh, yeah. outside of the technical categories. Um, and of course, I think Get Out's recent Oscar win illustrates yep. the Academy's change of relationship, but it was also helped by the Oscar So White hashtag. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's important to remember that horror tends to gain legitimacy when it no longer resembles horror, and that's kind of yeah. problematic. And then you've got that post-horror bullshit, um, which is that kind oh, of yep. long-standing <laughs> long tradition of lazy critical snobbery. Yes. And the same uh, horror, right? Because there's no such thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't have said that better myself. It is just like nothing drives me up a wall faster than than someone trying to tell me that like uh, Get Out and Silence of the Lambs weren't horror movies; that they were both like <laughs> dark suspense drama thrillers or some other like uh, hideous concoction of adjectives to hide what they really are. Yeah, and we have we impressed. we all we've always insisted on this show that there is just as much. Um, political significance, cultural impact, and artistic importance in like whatever you might call the low lowest of low schlock than there is in this so-called post in the big post horror or art horror, which is just it's just the the mainstream of criticism desperately trying to co-opt a bit of the cultural cred that it no longer has by kind of denigrating anything that might appear to be a genre form. 
Yeah, I think, John, you've hit the nail on the head. And you know what's really interesting about this? I mean, I teach filmmakers, so I have to have that conversation. We have a horror module. It's horror theory practice. And some of them want to go into genre filmmaking, and there's actually a real appetite for that in Ireland. But you have Mm. to have that conversation. You have to Mm. say, okay, if you're going to kind of seek funding from certain financers, you're going to have to say that horror film is actually a family tragedy that curdles into a nightmare. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know? horror has been kind of ghettoized for most of its existence Mm -hmm. so that's where it's kind of depressing when you have to kind of um look at up-and-coming filmmakers and performing performers and they're trying to get a film off the ground and you have to kind of um teach them about those legitimizing strategies right that you don't believe in right but it's the kind of reality the horrible world that we live in yeah yeah i i I really agree that that's it's difficult because as like like artists have to navigate the extant system while simultaneously stressing and attempting to to transgress its boundaries and that's always like a, a complicated and painful juggling act to to constantly have to repackage what you want to deliver as you know like functionally a part of your own soul but i you know i i definitely agree with what you're saying and i also think that there's that there's an in like an inverse to this as well that because horror is traditionally an outsider genre and it is alienated from mainstream uh, critical success and mainstream critical appraisal uh, that the uh, indie horror scene and the low to no no budget horror scene uh, thrives in a way that uh, no other kind of genre thrives. Like the the indie and no budget romance scene isn't anywhere near as robust and infamous as as like B and Z horror movies. Absolutely. And that's kind of testament as well to the kind of loyalty and credibility yeah. of horror fans. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Um, well, given that we've kind of talked about the state of modern horror, maybe to kind of wrap th- things up, are there any recommendations that you'd like to share? Anything that you think listeners should check out? Anything that kind of like backs up what you've been talking about? Um, I think that you should absolutely check out my book. I obviously would. <laughs> um, if anyone is kind of really stuck for money, I'm happy if they email me um, to kind of talk to them about that. Um, so the title, that's actual full title is Make America Hate Again, Trump Era Horror and the Politics of Fear. Um, if you want the kind of uh, short version or the hot take, as you might say, John, um, I did write an article on it, a short article for RTE. It's called Make America Scream Again. If you look that up, you'll find it. And I absolutely recommend that you check out Pontypool. I mean, you haven't lived if you haven't checked out <laughs> awesome Canadian zombie film. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Well, I will and- definitely watch that later today. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm heading off to um, watch Black Christmas tonight. I'm not sure what to expect, but I'm kind of hoping that there will be some kind of interesting stuff wrapped up in a bow, um, a stylishly entertaining package of studio-backed holiday horror. That's what I'm hoping for. We're recording our episode on uh, that movie this weekend, actually. So uh, I'm also very excited to see the new Black Christmas. It's going to be so good. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you uh, so much for coming on our show. And uh, definitely our listeners should check out your book and keep an eye out for the new book that is forthcoming. Yeah, I really appreciate that. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoyed this. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. Okay, cool. Wishing you some health and happiness over Christmas. Yeah, you as well. See you guys. Bye. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>